Thank you for listening to the More Revolution podcast. In this session, Chris Ballatin will be sharing a message entitled, Healing the Whole Man. This is the fourth message in a four-part series. We've been talking about uh, healing the whole man, and, and we've been talking about the fact that, um, you know, ha- sometimes we experience miracles, like, for instance, I, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed for somebody or somebody on our team has prayed for someone and a tumor has left their body. I mean, like a verifiable miracle. They've gone to the doctor, the tumor's got a, you know, a tumor on the breast or tumor someplace in their, in their body. And I mean, like they really, they, re, they go back to the doctor, they cannot find the tumor, maybe it's cancerous or non-cancerous. And that just happens over and over again. And then six months later, five months later, a year later, that that tumor or a similar tumor grows back someplace in their body. And that's kind of inspired this, this thing for me. I'm like, what, what is actually wrong? What's going on? And, and I started to just begin to think that, is it possible that some things that, are, that manifest in the physical, visible, are often rooted in another dimension in our triune being? And so I've been doing this uh, four-week series on healing the whole man. And it kind of began out of the book of Acts. And I won't read it to you because you know the story. It's a story when the, Peter and John are going to the temple. And they meet this guy at the gate, beautiful. And he's a lame from his mother's womb. And he asks for money. And Peter says, we're pastors. We don't have money. But what we do have, <laughs> we give to you. And he grabs him by the arms. And, and he walks and leaps. And he praises God. And he walks, he gets physically healed. He leaps, he gets emotionally healed. And he praises God, he gets spiritually healed. And so he has a multidimensional healing. And I began to realize that, that, uh, that sometimes um, we need healing in our whole person to actually keep our physical healing. And, and a second, I'm sorry, Third John 2 says, and you know this verse well, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. And here John ties our, the precursor for our, our holistic healing. He ties to our soul, that our soul becomes the thermometer in which the rest of our being is healed. <laughs> my, my grandkids behave all the time. They, they would never misbehave. They don't go to the bathroom. They never poop their diapers, just like Jesus from the very beginning. <clears throat> we need to keep that video for that young man when he gets older. <laughs> Show it to his wife when he's about 20. Just precious moments. <laughs> don't you love real? I just love real, unless it's against me. <laughs> I had a lady one time. I'm sorry, I'm totally off the subject now, but it's just, I'm going to say it anyway. I was preaching on a Sunday morning, and this lady got up in the middle of my message, and she said, you are the most arrogant man I've ever heard. I was preaching on the fact that we are good. <laughs> and I was probably doing what I do, <laughs> trying to be funny anyway. She stood up and she said, you are the most arrogant man I've ever, known, I've ever known. And she went on and on like that for probably, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds or a minute. It's quite a long time. And, and I can't stand your arrogance. And, 
And then um, Bill stood up to, to kind of help correct her. And she said, and you are the most arrogant man I've ever met. <laughs> so uh, apostles and prophets, they flow together. In this. <laughs> anyway, I didn't like that time. So, so uh, John ties our holistic healing to our soul. And he says, beloved, I pray that in all respects, you may prosper and be a good health, just as your soul prospers. And he and he ties the, our, our, our physical healing to our soul's prosperity. And, and so I just began to um, think about how we can begin to move with wisdom and with power so that when we're praying for the sick or healing the sick, and of course this has all the dimensions, it can be relational healing, it can be financial healing. Today we're relating it to physical healing, that we're, when, we, when we actually start to minister to the sick, we start to make sure that we're getting at the root cause why people are ill and, and make sure that this person stays well. And I gave a couple of, of examples. Well, let me just stay with this soul thing for a minute. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as division of soul and spirit, both joints and moral, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now remember that John said that you may be in good health and that you may prosper even as your soul prospers. And, and this verse, this, this Hebrew verse says that, that the word of God divides between the soul and the spirit. And, and it's often been taught that the writer of Hebrews is saying that God is trying to divide. Let's say this is the spirit and this is the soul, that God is trying to divide the spirit from the soul because the soul is inherently bad, evil, and the spirit is good. And for us to actually be you know, lovers of God, spiritual beings, that we need to cut off that part, that soul, that part that, that, you know, that has passion, that part that you know, has, feels joy and pleasure, we need to cut that off and we need to become a spiritual man. And a couple of things, first of all, we need to realize that God's the most emotional guy in the Bible. Sometimes people say, you know, those people are so emotional. How many of you know that this is also an emotion? And any of us who have teenagers would love this a lot more than this at certain specific times during issues. So how many of you know that that emotions, you have emotions because God has emotions. He, he, God has emotions. And so what this is, what this verse says, God is not saying that he takes the word and divides the word of God, divides the soul from the spirit. The actual original Greek says that he divides the soul from the soul and the spirit from the spirit. And what he's saying is this, the sword isn't dividing us this way, it's dividing us this way. It's cutting off what shouldn't be in the spirit from what should be, and cutting off what shouldn't be in the soul from what should be. Because how many of you know, even the commandment said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. David said, my soul makes a boast in the Lord. And then he cried out, he said, even my flesh and my soul cry out for the living God. What I'm getting at is this, is that if your, if your physical healing is tied to your soul's prosperity and you've been taught that your soul is somehow bad, how many of you know that in the midst of hating your soul, you could be cursing your body? 
And in Romans 6, it says, the mindset on the flesh is death. And so how many of you know that if you believe that Paul's talking about your current flesh, then I don't know why you're trying to get healed. Until you realize that in the book of Ephesians, that husbands are supposed to love their wives as they love their own flesh, and they're supposed to nourish and cherish their flesh. Is it possible that we don't have holistic healing because we actually are trying to get healed what we don't think is spiritual? How many of you know that there's the old flesh? That's the one you drowned in the baptismal tank. This is all review for those of you. My wife saw. Podcast. For all of you who've heard this before, this is review. I did good. I rock. I'm awesome. Watch out. That lady might be in the room again. Don't leave, Sherry. I'm, I'm repenting for that. Think you rock more. You're more awesome than me. I love you. May all your camels prosper. I forget what I was saying. I'm stalling right now. So the flesh, I know what I was saying. The flesh, how many of you know that there's a flesh? Galatians 5 says the deeds of the flesh are evident. Their jealousy, uh, selfish ambition, their sensuality, their immorality, and it, go, makes, it gives this whole list. And when he says the mindset on the flesh is death, he's talking about the old flesh, jealousy, envy, strife, contention, you know, sexuality, all, not good sexuality, that's in the marriage, you know, that's okay, but not bad sexuality. You know, so th those are the deeds of the flesh. That's what we don't want to put our minds on. But how many of you know that you've been renewed, and when you receive Jesus Christ, you received a new flesh, and you're supposed to love and cherish your flesh? You're supposed to nourish and cherish your flesh. You got to get this because you may not be walking in holistic healing because you're trying to heal the thing that you think is supposed to die. I'm getting me a new body. You should see it. <laughs> I'm going to be tall. I'm going to be able to dunk in heaven. And so, anyway, we, we've been talking about this, the fact that when Jesus healed people, he, he took into account the whole man. I'll give you a couple of examples and we'll move on because this is still review. You know, when Jesus healed the blind man, it's interesting how he did it. Do you remember how he healed the blind man? Jesus, he, he encounters a blind man and, and the man says, son of David, have mercy on me. And it, the disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents? That's the context. You remember that? And Jesus said, no, it isn't that. It's for the glory of God. And then he begins to heal this man. How does he heal him? <laughs> you know what? If, if you ever spit on someone and they got healed, we would have spitting conferences. <laughs> we would have spitting training. We would become Methodists. I'm serious. If you ever spit on someone and they got healed, we'd have whole sessions on how to, you don't go, you go, you got to get it deep from the heart. It's just, it's not just from the, 
It's not just from the esophagus. You got to get her deep down. You got to get her. Have you ever thought about why did Jesus spit on the guy? I mean, don't you believe that Jesus could have just with the word healed him? I mean, the centurion said that. You don't even have to come to my house, send the word. So uh, what I'm getting at is Jesus healed that man. He spit on him for a purpose. And I want to propose to you that Jesus was trying to heal the whole man. Every time he prayed for someone, 27 times there are recorded ways in which Jesus healed people. I want to propose to you that he spit on the man because in Jewish culture, when, if you had a lifetime illness born that way from birth, in other words, it didn't happen through an accident, a Jewish person thought that God had cursed you. It's Deuteronomy 28, where God says, if you do these good things, all these good things will happen to you. But if you don't keep these rules, then all these things are going to happen to you. And there's 50, there's 50 lines of bad stuff, madness, sickness, disease. All these curses will fall on you. So when a Jewish person saw someone born blind, they thought God had cursed them because their family had disobeyed God and done something terribly evil. So when a blind man would walk down the street, instead of getting mercy like he probably would in most societies, he would get spit on. They would spit on him because they were saying, we agree with God, you deserve to be cursed. So how many know that the last time the man heard that it was a trigger, that he was about to again be cursed. And Jesus took what cursed the man and he used it to bless the man so the man could be physically healed and emotionally healed. The leper, how did Jesus heal lepers? He touched them, but he didn't just touch them. There's four accounts of Jesus healing lepers. Three of them were individuals and one with 10. Remember that? The 10 lepers. And after Jesus would physically touch the lepers, what would he do? He'd say, go show yourselves to the priest. Why? Because he wanted them to be emotionally healed. That's why he touched them. He wanted them to be physically healed. And he sent them to the priest so they can be reconnected with the Father spiritually. In other words, what I'm getting at is that Jesus always did multidimensional healings. Walking, leaping, and praising God was the way Jesus healed people. He healed them from the very core of who they were. It's interesting because in that one, in that one incident with the 10 lepers, you remember that one, one comes back and thanks him and nine go on and get healed. It says that the, it says the one that, the nine that went, went, the nine that went their way and on the way to the priest, they get healed. It says they got well, they got well. And I can't remember the Greek word. It's in here, but I'm not going to look it up. But the one who came back and thanked him, he said, your faith has made you Whole. That word whole is the word sozo. Nine got well. One got well and got sozoed. Sozoed. Spirit, soul, and body. Got all three dimensions of him got restored to God. Which of the lepers do you think is going to stay well? The one who got sozoed. Are you with me at all? This morning, I want to talk to you about breaking power, the power of curses. And this is, our, I think, our fifth week. Um, Galatians chapter uh, 2, verse 20. I'll read it to you. You can turn there if you want. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. How many of you know that God, Jesus Christ, is the ultimate body snatcher? He came into your house and killed the man who lived there and took over, and it became his temple. 
It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You are the great, original Grateful Dead. Now, he goes on to talk to the Galatians in chapter 3. You foolish Galatians who bewitched you. That word bewitched means who cast a spell over you. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly crucified. This is, what I, this is the one thing I want to know from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 10. As many as are the works of the law are under a curse. Say, under a curse. Under. Say this, the law, the law is a curse. For it is written, um, let's see, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God's evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Everybody say faith. faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, who, who practices such things shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not under a curse. Now listen to what he's saying. This is the Galatian church, and he's saying, listen, you started by the Spirit. These are people who are walking in wonders and signs and miracles. Are you worth me at all? And he said, listen, but somebody in the midst of your walk with God, you're walking with God and somebody bewitched you. And how did they bewitch you? How did they cast a spell over you? You're like, the devil has no power over me. That's right. He doesn't unless you give it to him. How do you give him your power? Because he has no authority. How many know that he's been, he's, he's been defeated and disarmed? If he was in your swimming pool, his name would be Bob. He got no arms and no feet. You didn't get that. Anyway, how did, how did the devil who's been disarmed and defeated, he's, his power's been taken, you, everything's been, how did he get power? You, the only way the devil has power over you is when you give it to him. The question is, how do you give it to him? You give it to him, you get bewitched when you try to perform through the law what you already got through grace. As soon as you do that, as soon as you start to get through, through your works, what you got through his, you're bewitched. That's a good word, you just didn't get it. Do you understand that the law came into being way before Moses wrote it on a tablet? See, when, when God created man, Adam, in the garden, how many of you know that it, it, it says in Genesis 1 that he created man in, in his image and in his likeness? How many know we were created in his image and in his likeness? And he created them male and female and told them to rule. Remember that? And then in Galatians, I'm sorry, Galatians. In Genesis chapter 3, the devil comes in the garden and talks to Eve. And, she, and he says to her, can't you, you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden. He goes, no, we can eat from all the trees except for one. And in, in, in the day we eat it, we'll die. And what does the devil say? You will not die, for God knows in the day you eat it, you'll be like God. How many know they were already like God? Because they were created in God's image. How many know they were trying to get through performance what they already had through creation? 
And whenever you try to get through performance, which you already have through creation, you're under, oh, you, you become bewitched. That's, how, that's why as soon as Eve believed him, she became bewitched. She, she was under a spell. Adam became bewitched. He, he was under a spell. Why? Because they were trying to do with performance what they already had through creation. He, she, he said, eat this, eat this prune. And when she ate the prune, she came under a curse. Why? Not because there's anything wrong with the prune, but she was trying to become like God by doing something. And the whole world came under a curse. The, the devil, he had to eat dust. The, the man, he cultivated the ground. God says, oh, you think that you can get through performance? You, th- you, you want to do it instead of let me do it? Okay, I'll tell you what. Cultivate the ground. We'll see how you do. You cultivate the ground, but what does it yield? Thorns and thistles. What was the curse over woman? Two curses. You'll have pain in childbirth, but what was the most important curse? And your husband shall rule over you. How many know before that, he, he made them male and female and said both of them to subdue the earth? Somebody said, yeah, but wait, he made uh, Eve was the helper. The word helper there is used 13 times in the Hebrew. Three times for woman, 10 times for God. Somebody once said, well, you know what? Adam was created before Eve, so that's why he was in charge of her. Well, the animals would be created before any of us. I don't know what that says. I love what Charles Stock said Friday night. He says, we eat animals, so they're in the ministry. And he said this, the value of mankind is seen in that animals give their life so that we can live. And God designed it that way. I believe that. If God didn't want us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of meat. You know what the Africans call vegetarians? Bad hunters. We're moving on because we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about being bewitched. (laughs) What happens when you try to get through performance, what you already have through creation? See, when you got born again, you became a new creation, not a new spirit, a whole new creation. You love God because you love God. And God loves you because he loves you. This is deep. (laughs) He doesn't love you because you come to church or even because you made every single session I taught in. You have more favor with him if you do that, but he loves you the same. God loves you because he loves you. It's his nature to love you. You can't get him to love you anymore. And listen, when you start to work for love instead of from love, you put yourself under a curse and you become bewitched. And do you understand, you know, we should read some of these curses and we won't, it'll just mess you up. But Deuteronomy 28, 15, from the 15th verse to the 68th verse. Well, that's a lot of verses. That's 53 verses of curses. That's what you're under. You're under 53 verses of curses. It's a line in a song. Where's Jeremy? That's a line in a song right there. When you, when you try to gain favor with God through what you do instead of who you are, the curses come on you. 
You're like, are you saying I'm sick because I'm under a curse? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying maybe you are. So what I'm getting at is like some people are leaving here like, oh, no, you're saying that's my fault. I'm not saying it's your fault. Unless it is. I'm just trying to make sure you get well. I'm making sure I get well. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to like, the worst thing in the world is somebody comes up to get prayed for and you pray for them, they don't get well and you make it their fault. Seriously, I, I mean, it's just like develop a doctrine to make people feel bad for being sick. That really helps a lot. But the other stupid thing to do is if there's something that we're doing as a person to perpetuate sickness, the dumbest thing in the world to do is not tell people about it. And you go to the doctor and he doesn't want to make you feel bad that you're eating stuff that's killing you. Come on, Benny. I want an amen in the front row here. You, you see what I'm getting at? It's like, uh, it's, and it's not, it's not hard. Like, what do I do if I'm bewitched? I'm under this spell. It's really simple. Just stop. Don't stop what you're doing. Stop while you're doing it. You, you know, we all want, like, if you're, if you're, uh, if you've had a lifetime of illness and someone gives you a message like this and you're like, no, no, you know, Bill's got to come. He's got to pray for me. He's got to lay hands on me and the elders got to come around and you know, anoint me with oil and, and, you know, dip me seven times in the pool of Bethesda. And, and you know, there's got to be a ceremony. I mean, I'm be, listen, you're not going to tell me I've been sick this long and all I got to do is change my mind. You, you're going to do something dramatic here. You, you understand what I'm getting at? You, you're, you got to do something. Listen, listen, I've been sick for a long time here, buddy. Don't you be telling me that all I got to do is stop performing for love and start performing from love and I'll be well. Don't you tell me that. Can't be that simple. I can't be this sick because it's that simple. Make it hard. Well, make it hard is how you got there. How I got there. <laughs> this isn't really about you. Anyway, I mean, this is a really stupid example, but it comes to my mind. So maybe it might be the Lord. It just maybe it isn't, but it might be. I had a problem with my colon for months. I mean, like terrible, like I won't describe it to you. So don't worry. I have a weak stomach. So when people start doing this from the pulpit, I'm like, yeah, I got to go to the bathroom. But it was that bad. And it was about the bathroom. And when it was all over. A friend of mine called me and he said, hey, I heard you have this problem. And he described it to me perfectly without me telling him. I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah, I had that for years. He said, I had that for five years. I had it for six months. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't eat food. It was terrible. And he goes, you know, um, what I did is I drank carrot juice. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got, and he said, really, honestly, within a week, I was, I was well. I'm like, listen, don't give me that. Actually, I didn't say that to him. I said, oh, thank you very much. You know, I got off the phone. He said, Kathy's all, what did he say? She said, I said, he said, you got to drink carrot juice. You know, I've been to the doctor four times. Been on different medications. Next deal is operation. And I said, he says that he drank carrot juice and he got well. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. That's dumb, man. I ain't going to drink carrot juice. <laughs> I drank a Coke. It didn't help. <laughs> What's carrot juice going to do? I mean, when you drink the real thing and it doesn't do anything. <laughs> so she's like, I'm going to go get you some carrot juice. So I'm like, whatever. 
She goes and gets me a carrot juice. This is a juice. You can ask her. I drank carrot juice for two days and I was well. Listen, listen, this is my own thought. This is my own thought. I think it was like dipping in the river. I don't think it had anything to do with carrot juice. But those among us don't agree. But I still drink carrot juice just in case it was the carrot juice. It's just something about when you're in a bad situation, you think, you know, if it's this bad, it's got to be painful to recover. It's almost like saying, you know what, if you have a surgery, you've got to be in a, I mean, it, you know, he's got to do brain surgery with a hammer on my head for it to actually work. And we relate that the solution has to be as painful as the problem for it to actually be a solution. It doesn't occur to us that we just like, you know, if you just change your thoughts, you'll change your health. And I just start saying to myself, I'm good, God loves me, and that's that. I'm a good man, and he loves me. Not only that, he, he likes me, and he doesn't just tolerate me, he celebrates me. That's just who I am, that's who he is, and, and that's the way it is. And, and I'm, I'm not eating the figs, I'm not going to do any of that stuff, I'm just going to love God, because I do. I remember when we're, our kids were young, you know, they say, they were teenagers, you know, teenage years. Do I have to go to church? I go, no. Good. You get to. I get to. Yes, you get to. Shoot, now they get paid for it. You don't have to go to church. You get to. You know, it's just like, do you know what I'm getting at? It's like, people are like, you got saved by... You became righteous by faith in God. And people are like, I know what you're saying. You're like, I'm righteous by faith, but so, so, like, so positionally I'm righteous, but actually I suck. I'm like, no, no, you're righteous and you're righteous. When Jesus made you righteous, he actually made you righteous by faith. When you had faith in him, he changed your nature and you received the divine nature by faith. So that you are actually righteous, not positionally righteous. You are righteous. You became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not like a theology and a theory that sometime, someday. Listen, you're so righteous that if you sin, you need an attorney. If you sin. First John 2. We know that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's an attorney. I'm not saying you can't sin. I'm just saying, why would you want to? Or if you do, you have an attorney. My point is, he changed your nature by faith. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Paul um, said this, that it was by grace through faith that we got saved. Do you know the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy means you didn't get what you deserve. Faith means you, I'm sorry, grace means you got what you didn't deserve. So I used this example a couple weeks ago. If you're driving 100 miles an hour down the road in a 30 mile an hour zone, the police officer pulls you over and he doesn't give you a ticket. How many know you got Marcy? But in the same scenario, he pulls you over doing 130 and he gives you a thousand dollar bill for speeding. That's grace. Grace means you got what you didn't deserve. While we were sinners, he what? Saved us. You got more than a thousand dollar bill. He loves you because he loves you. In fact, Paul makes such a case for it 
that you got saved by grace and that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And by the fifth chapter, he makes such of, of Romans, he makes such a great uh, uh, he makes such a, a great uh, case for grace that he goes, the more you sin, the more money you get, you know, metaphorically. He, the more where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then he realizes that he's got a real problem, not theologically, but practically, because he just told people the more you sin, the more grace you get, the more thousand dollar bills you get. So he, he goes, oh, well, how am I going to fix this? So he says, should, I, should we sin so grace should abound? And the answer, if you've read the first five chapters, is yes. <laughs> so he goes, how am I going to fix this? He goes, he goes, should we sin so grace should abound? And then he goes, dead people don't sin. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Romans 6, he says 47 times in Romans 6, 7, and 8, you're dead. Why did he have to make such a point? Because he made such a point of, you got saved by grace, and the more you sin, the more grace you get. And then he goes, wait a second, let me make it clear. You can't sin because you're dead. And dead people don't sin. Mostly they don't. And when they do, they have an attorney. Anyway, you understand. <laughs> uh, now, so Isaiah 61, are you there? Isaiah 61, we're, 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 we're going to be done in about 10 minutes. Can you endure that? Or so. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to what? Preach the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to speak what? Release to captives and freedom to prisoners. How many of you know that there's two kinds of people behind bars that we've been anointed to release? Captives and prisoners. Captives are POWs, people who got captured in battle. And prisoners are people who got sent there by the judge. They got sent to prison by a judge's decree. Are you with me? Yes? Okay. Turn to Matthew chapter um, 18, and we're going to talk about freeing prisoners. Matthew 18, freeing prisoners. I think I can do this in 10 minutes. Disciples, verse 1, came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I love this. You know why they asked that question? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Because they've been arguing about who's the greatest among themselves. And so they're finally like, Well, Jesus, you tell us who's the greatest. I love that. I'm sure... Peter's like, I'm the greatest. Jesus called me rock. <laughs> Thomas is all, I doubt it. <laughs> and so they have this argument and they finally say to Jesus, you tell us who's the greatest. I love this part. Jesus turns to them one day and he goes, one of you will betray me. Next verse. And they argued over who was the greatest. The timing's terrible. I can't, it can't be me who's going to betray him. I'm amazing. Yeah, right, John. I beat you to the tomb. Anyway, it goes on like that. So there, the question is, who's the greatest? And Jesus called the child. Who's the greatest? And he called the child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like this child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I like that. There's like, who's the greatest? And Jesus is all, I don't even know if you're getting in. 
Verse four, <laughs> that had to be very humbling. Which one of the 12 of us is the greatest? I hope you're getting in. <laughs> Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such as uh, such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be thrown in the depths of the sea. Okay, think about that verse. That's a key verse for the next, for the rest of the chapter. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to the man whom the stumbling blocks come. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter crippled or lame sorry, and have, than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fury of hell. I've always thought of what if both eyes are a problem. Anyway, that's just the way my brain works. <laughs> See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of God who's in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save what's lost. What do you think? If anyone has a hundred sheep and one of them go astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one who's strained? If it turns out he finds him, and truly I say to you, he rejoices more over than over the one, then over the 99 who have not gone astray. So it is not the will of God, the Father, I'm sorry, it's not the will of the Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I want to stop for a minute. I want you to see something. Here's what he's saying. They say, who's the greatest? Jesus says, these children. And by the way, if anyone makes one of these children stumble, it'd be better he wasn't born. Because it'd be like, just put a millstone around his neck and throw him in the depths of the sea. If you're going to cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better if you weren't born. And by the way, if your hand causes them to stumble, your eye, your feet, anything causes them to stumble, it'd be better you cut it off than to make them stumble. And Jesus starts talking about what it, what, how important it is that we don't cause people to stumble, that we don't send them off, that, the, that we don't make someone that was part of the hundred, wander off and become by himself, be by himself. And Jesus talks about offense, not living an offense, not causing offenses. If somebody's causing an offense, it'd be better that you cut off your arm than end up with the, at the bottom of the sea. Are you following me? And he ties this to the, 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 the sheep that are together. And he's like, if one wanders off, it's the father's desire to go after the one. Now, get this, this is still part of the, the parable. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. What's he doing? He's talking about the one who was offended, the little child who got offended, the one who you're ready to cut your arm off for. Are you, are you with me? The one who's wandered away. It's all the same person that started in this first verse. The one who got offended. Are you, are you with me? And he's saying, listen, if, if, that, if that person, if he sinned against you, or and later on you'll see that if you've sinned against him, just go talk to him and, and, and work it out. And, and if, he, if, he, if he turns, if he listens to you, then you want a brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take, take two or more. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact will be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to you, tell it to the church. Now, let's just stop for a minute. Here's what he's, he's trying to do. Understand, he's trying to say, listen, 
If you cause your brother to stumble, it'd be better if you weren't born. If, if whatever you're doing that's causing your brother to stumble, cut it off. Listen, let me tell you how important it is. If your brother stumbled, if he sinned against you, you sinned against him, go talk to him. Did you notice he didn't say, go talk to five other people about him? Uh, let's pray for Chris. You know. It's just Hebrew for gossip while we talk to God. If you've got a problem with someone, what do you do? Go talk to them. You don't have a right to talk to anyone else about them until you've talked to them. Well, I just don't want to hurt their feelings. No, you're just afraid that they're going to hurt your feelings. You got a problem with someone. I don't care who it is. They're scary. People tell me, I'm scary. Well, people are afraid to talk to you. Well, have them bring somebody then. Bring Bill. He's scary. <laughs> Danny's scary. Go get the friend and say, hey, could you talk to Chris with me? He scares me, you know? Whatever. But go talk to the person. You don't have a right to talk about someone that you haven't talked to. And then if that doesn't fix it, like, you know, he's like, hey, you know what? You know, you, you, you know I, I got a problem with somebody and I talked and, and I go talk to them. You know, I go talk to Paul and, you know, uh, Paul, you know what? You, you really sinned against me. And he's like, well, you know, I think it's your fault. I'm like, well, you know, whatever. And we don't work it out. Then what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to, am I supposed to stop there? No, because this is an offended brother. It'd be better if I wasn't born. Do you understand? And then God goes, okay, go get a friend. Go get a couple friends. So I go get Eric and, 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 and Benny. And I say, you know, I think Paul sinned against me. Or, 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 or we got a problem. We got a relational problem. And we get together. You know what happens nine times out of ten when you confront somebody with someone else? Typically you find out that you're the one that's got the problem. I think Paul sinned against me usually changes to, I think I've sinned against Paul. And listen, when he says bring somebody else, you don't bring your attorney. I, 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 you know who your attorney is. It's the other people you've already talked to that have the same problem with them. And they're not just a person, they're evidence. Oh, here we go. You need to bring somebody that you both mutually respect. So if I got a problem with Paul, we both respect Dan or, or Eric. I'm going to say, why don't, how, would you, how would you like to meet with Eric like, or Paul or, or Benny or somebody we both mutually respect? So we do that and it doesn't work. Are you with me? It doesn't work. Now what do we do? He says, okay, listen, bring him before the church. You think, are we going to bring him up in front of the church? Go, <laughs> Pastor Paul sinned against me and I just want you all to know. He's got some sort of disease. Treat him like a leper. No, he's saying bring him to the elders and get some more counsel. The goal is, you understand, we're trying to reconcile him. It's the goal from verse one on. We're trying to reconcile. We're going, the father goes after this one. That's how it starts. The father's after this one. He's not out to cut him off. He's out to bring him in. He goes, okay, you tried a couple people. Let's try the elders. Let's bring the church together and see if we can reconcile this person. And look what happens. It says, now... If he refuses to uh, tell it to the church, if he refuses to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And you're like, that's finally it right there. Once we talk to the church, we cut him off. Well, 
I don't know if that's what he's saying. Read on. Truly I say to you, whoever, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. For, if, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in their midst. Okay, here's the real key verse. Then, then Peter said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said, up to seven times 70. How many of you know that when you're treating them like a Gentile, it doesn't mean you're exiling them into hell? Peter picks up on the fact that when Jesus said, whatever's bound in, on, in heaven, on, on earth shall be bound in heaven, and vice versa. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, once you went to them, and then you brought a friend, and then you brought the counsel of the church, and you can't reconcile them. Now I want you to treat them like a Gentile, like somebody you have no relationship with, and now I want you to agree with God for their return. I want, you to, I want you to get some people together and I want you to begin to, bl to believe, I want you to begin to forgive them when they don't deserve it. I want, okay, you tried to get reconciled, you tried to get closure, that doesn't work. So now you're going to treat them like someone you have no relationship with and what do you do with people you have no relationship with? You, you, you agree with God that they'll be forgiven because God so loved the world that he, came, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come to the world to judge the world but that the world should be saved. How many of you know that now we're extending grace to people who don't deserve it, just like God treats them? That's how you're treating them. You're going to agree with God, make a symphony with other people and say, now I'm going to treat you like a tax collector. Now I'm going to forgive you, even though you don't deserve it. You've been bound to God in heaven, and now I say you're going to be bound to God on earth. Not because of what you did, but because of what he did. Now I'm going to apply the blood to you. How you like that? Yeah. Go ahead and run away. I'm sending God after you. And Peter, of all people, says, how many times do I have to forgive people? I think that's hilarious. He's the most offensive guy in the Bible, except for Jesus. How many times do I have to forgive people? Why does he say that? Because he knows that Jesus is still telling him that he has to forgive even after they can't reconcile. That's why he says in the context, how many times do I have to forgive them? And then Jesus tells him a story, and we're going to end with this story. He says, verse, verse 22, Peter says, Lord, how, many, how often do I have to forgive my brother who's sinned against me? And then Jesus tells us seven times 70 Verse 23, for this reason, verse 23 there, the kingdom of heaven, everybody say the kingdom of heaven, Amen. may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle with them, one owed him 10,000 talents, over a million dollars. One who owed him 10,000 talents was, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had to repay for repayment to be made. Verse 26, the slave fell on the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, I'll repay you everything. But his Lord felt compassion and released him and forgave him his debt. But the slave went out and found a fellow slave who owed him a hundred denarii, about a little over a thousand dollars, and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay me back what you owe me. His fellow slave fell on the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling and he went and threw him into prison until he paid back 
wall that he owed. So his fellow slaves saw what had happened and they were grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. Should you have not had mercy on the fellow slave in the same way that had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, hand him over to the torturers until he should pay all that was owed him. Look at the last verse, scariest verse in the Bible. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know who the guy is in the story who got forgiven a million dollars and wouldn't forgive his friend? Peter. Peter's the one who says, and how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? Jesus said, listen, Peter, let me tell you a story about a man I know. He's forgiven a million bucks. Know anybody like that? And, 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 and he has friends that, that owe him a thousand. And he doesn't want to forgive them. You know this story? Mary had a little lamb. Remember later on, he says to Peter, Satan has, re, has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. What opens the door? To be sifted when you don't forgive. In verse, 1 Samuel 18, remember Saul and David coming back from the, this great battle where they just killed Goliath and says the women were singing as they came. Saul has killed his thousands. David had killed his ten thousands. Remember this story? And it says, and Saul was jealous that day. Next verse says, and Saul was suspicious. And the next verse says, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. Listen, you don't have to forgive your brother. It's cool. No problem. But God has his ways and means committee. And he will use the Egyptians to chase you into the sea of forgiveness. I don't know if you got that. You say, God send the tormentors after me. He doesn't have to really send the tormentors after you. All he has to do is leave you alone. He's the reason why the tormentors are, are not on you. He's covered you. And how many know there's a difference between a covering and a cover-up? The Lord's covered you with his blood. He's made you righteous. He's forgiven you multiple millions of dollars. And guess what you, your responsibility is? To forgive people who also don't deserve it. Well, this brother offended me and I'm right. He's wrong. That's right. Are you, are you, are you, do you want to be right or do you want to be together? Is it more important for you to be right? Is justice more important than love? Would you rather be right or be together? Because if you need to be right instead of be together, then unforgiveness is going to enter your life. Offense is going to take place in your life. And what's going to happen is pretty soon you start being tormented. And what's the, what's the message? Forgive. They don't deserve it. Neither do you. The only reason you would hold an offense against someone else is because you've forgotten how much you owed the master when you came here. And, some, and there's something about living a wealthy life that sometimes causes you to forgive where you came from. And when you lose sight of where you came from, you start to build cases against your friends that you live with, not realizing 
that the only reason you're living as a multimillionaire is because the king gave you an inheritance that you couldn't get yourself. Better to cut your hand off than cut your brother off. Offense is serious in the kingdom, should not be dealt with lightly. I realize that our media, perpetuated by people who love to watch it, we love to just take anybody who's in power, be it a president, be it a, a rock star, be it anyone, follow them around. And what do we want on them? We want dirt. What sells? Dirt. We want a fence. We want a reason to not like them. Whether it's president who's from another party. Are you, are you getting this? You don't have the right. I don't have the right to have awe against anyone. Well, yeah, but you don't understand. They believe in, they're, they're liberals. They, that's fine. I don't have to agree with their agenda, but it doesn't mean that I have a, any right to, to have an offense with them. I don't know if God likes all of your agenda. <laughs> Offense will kill you. Jealousy, suspicion, and working for what you already have will put you under a curse. Those are ways that we set the table in the presence of our enemies. And instead of watching us eat, he comes and devours our food. But when we keep our heart clean and we work really hard, listen, this is the, the, the message of Matthew 18 is work really hard to keep your relationships clean. And if you can't, if you can't keep it clean, because something on someone else's side, you've done everything, then forgive them anyway. Don't hold on against anybody. Well, what if they deserve it? Even if they deserve it, free them. The very first ministry ever given to a disciple when Jesus rose from the dead, he breathed on them and he said, whomever you forgive. Before he said, do miracles, do wonders, do signs. Before any of that, he breathed on them. And said, whomever you forgive, I forgive. Whomever, you, whomever sins you retain, I retain. What's the key? Forgive. You can forgive people. I have the right to forgive people. You know, that's one of the reasons why they crucified Jesus. They said, you're saying you have the right to forgive men. Jesus said, that's right, I'm the son of God. You know what? So are you. You're a son of God. You, you are an ambassador for God. And you can say, you know what? I forgive you. Well, does God forgive you? He said that if I did, he would. So I guess he has. I have a feeling we can forgive countries. It's just a thought. I want you to stand right now. Please. I remember the, I think it was the first message, but it, I know it was the first month. The Danny Silk, when he became our pastor, when, let me give you a little history. When Bill left Weaverville and came here, Danny Silk became our pastor. Don't you guys love Danny Silk? I will never forget this message. I think it was his first message, but I know it was his first month. He taught on offense. In fact, I think he might have taught right out of Matthew 18. 
And then he said, if anyone has anything against anyone, I want you to go to them right now. I had a line of people going to me. It wasn't fun. And uh, you know, since then, I've never offended anyone. I wish that were true. But that day, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about how, how I perceive myself and how people perceive me. And it's been a process. And I wish I could say that, boy, I'm perfect. And I, I, you know, I, 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 I wish I could say, honestly, I've never offended anybody since then. It wouldn't be true at all. But I can say this. One of the things that has happened since then is I have a great value for cleaning up my mess. A great value that I never had before that. And, and I've, I've realized something, that you can be right. But if right is keeping the one out of the, cra- out of the flock, then I don't know what good it does to be right and cut off someone from the flock. And I do realize that there's, there are dimensions to this, and I could preach the other side of this. I do realize that there are people that are, are hurting other people and that there is a time of isolation for them. I know, I know all that. But th- this morning, we're just talking about offenses. We're talking about making things right with people. And we're talking about your fear should not give you the right to not clean up your mess. Your fear should not give you the right. I'm afraid how that person's going to respond. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to talk to them. That's your responsibility. I'm afraid how, how, what they're going to say or that I'm going to be the bad guy. That's fine. You know, you, you got two more tries. You can still take it to bring somebody with you and you can still take them to some leaders. And the goal isn't to accuse them. The goal is to clean up your mess, clean up their mess and, and to reconcile. So I'm saying by all that, that Jesus doesn't say, you know, live unoffendedly casually. He says, this is a really big deal. This is huge. You cannot live with offense. It will kill people. It will kill you. It, it, it's a destroyer in the body. Are you with me? And so how many of you would say, I want your eyes open. I'm not going to call you forward. But you've lived with offense and you want to humble yourself because Jesus began the message was acting like a child and humbling yourself. And this morning you'd say, that's me. I live, I've lived offended and I'm going, to, I'm going to clean up my mess. I want you to raise your hand. And all, all I want you to raise your hand for is that you're humbling yourself in front of everyone. You're saying, that's me. Uh, I'm not going to live like this anymore. Okay, how many of you, th- put your hand down. How many of you agree that you're going to go clean up your mess? You're going to go clean your mess up. You're going to go make it right. You're going to go work it out. Whatever it takes, you're going to work it out. Good. That's good. Let me just pray for all y'all. Lord, we just, we just pray right now for offense. Even in my own life, Father, I'm aware that there's a couple of things that still need to be cleaned up in my life. <laughs> what a shock. But Lord, I pray that we would live a life where our goal is to live unoffended and, unof- and, and, and without offending others. That we would live without unforgiveness that we would, we would be forgiving people who are quick to forgive, realizing that we ourselves are so in need of forgiveness. But we are self-messed up. We are self-deserve we are self deserve to be punished. And how we can forget that is sometimes beyond our grasp, that we are people who need grace and mercy. God, May we not lose sight how we got here when we're mad at people, when we're frustrated with people, when, or when even ourselves, when we messed up, 
God, let us sometimes, we just need to give ourselves a break and realize that some of the greatest unforgiveness we have sometimes is with ourselves. And we're just, we just begin to hate the person that God created us to be. God, may we have grace and mercy. God, I need it myself. You know, quiet people offend people too. It's not just people that have strong personalities. Sometimes silence isn't golden. Sometimes when you withdraw from people, you take your love with you and you think that you're being kind, but it feels like abandonment. God, we just pray. We just need mercy. We need to extend mercy. We need to love people. We need to be loved, God. So many of us in this room are like, I'm the person who left. I'm not the person who sinned. I'm the person who left. I don't even know I got here. And we just want to say to you, please forgive us. Those of us that held things against you, please forgive us. Those of us who are more apt to offend people through our words or our actions, please forgive us. God, may we be over, so overly aware of how much we've received by loving you that we married into a very rich family and that all that we have in this family was, wasn't, done, wasn't given to us because we did such a good job. Just we married the right guy. God, may we show mercy to people who are trying to find their way home. Huh. May we be patient with people who've gotten lost. May we be patient with ourselves, God, when we seem to not get it right over and over. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but I've just gone through a season where I've just gotten so frustrated with myself. Just don't seem to be able to get it right. And I've just felt like the Lord said to me the other day, I really like you. And uh, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. He told me this the other day. I'm not sure this publicly with anyone. He said, if you, if you take care of your messes, I'll take care of your heart. And I've just realized in my own life that there are things that are hard to change. It's hard to change yourself. I've just realized that I, I really don't think I can, really not from the core of who I am. But I just realized that if I do what I can do, that he'll do what only he can do. So God, we just pray for people who are stuck. There are people in this room, by the word of the Lord, I, know, I just have this word in my spirit. It's really simple, but some of you are stuck. I pray for people who are stuck. You just do the same thing over and over, and you're like, I am so stuck. And I want to say this, the Father forgives you. The Father forgives you. And I, and I have a feeling that Getting unstuck starts with you forgiving you. You don't have a right to be angry with you. You didn't make you. You don't have any more right to be angry with you than you have to be angry with any other person that you don't own. You don't own yourself. God owns you. I want you just to all say this. Jesus, I so thank you for grace. grace. And I know, I know 
I do not deserve it. And I pray right now for every person who's gotten lost, who's somehow wandered away from the very center of the heart of God. They might be present with us, but they're lonely and they're disenfranchised. And Lord, if that's me, I forgive myself. And Lord, if it's somebody else, I forgive them. And God, I pray that you would give me grace that wherever I've sinned against somebody, that I would have the courage to change and to be confronted and to not react, but to be a lover of God and lover of people. Thank you again for giving me this person who doesn't deserve it. Mercy and grace. Lord, I want to live in the joy of what I don't deserve. Amen. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this session. For more information, please visit our website at www.moralrevolution.com.